You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 12. We are continuing our study through this long, kind of heavy book, but there is much for us to learn. You know, the Bible is a book that will speak to you individually, right? I mean, if you will, if you will engage the Scriptures, it will change you. That's why I make such a big deal about reading your Bible, reading your Bible consistently, uh, comprehensively, reading through the Word of God. It's a life changer. And so reading the Bible will affect you as an individual. It'll affect our church. If we are a church that is building ministry on the book, if we do things God's way, uh, if we do things biblically, stand on biblical truths, it will give us strength and power and effectiveness as a local body of believers. So the Bible speaks to us individually. The Bible speaks to us as a church. But did you know the Bible can also affect a nation? If a nation will allow biblical truths to, to um, saturate it, that nation will be blessed by God. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we're going to look at God's communication with and dealing with the nation of Israel tonight. But I want us to understand that as we look at the spiritual condition of Israel, there are some parallels with what's going on in our nation. Now again, the passage we're going to study is between God and Israel. Uh, but I think there are some principles that we can glean for our nation, for the United States of America. Now, some people believe that you should never look at a passage of Scripture that's about Israel and draw parallels from it uh, concerning your own nation, concerning America. I think that is patently wrong because the Bible tells us that's wrong. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, hold, turn to 1 Corinthians 10, I want to show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to show you a very important verse about how we should think about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament should influence us today. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it talks about the nation of Israel. It talks about their idolatry, how God was not pleased with them. Uh, in verse 5, they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Now these things, nation of Israel's idolatry, God's dealing with the nation of Israel, these things took place as, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So here's what Paul is writing. We can learn some things from Israel and their, their failures and the way God dealt with them. There are some principles we can take from God's interaction with his people and apply to our lives and our community and our nation. Everybody see that? So it's not wrong to do that. So keeping that in mind, I want you to go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 12. And we're going to talk about a spiritually bankrupt nation. We're going to see what a spiritually bankrupt nation looks like. But 
just to kind of reorient us to this book, notice the outline there, very broad outline of this book. It starts with God calling Ezekiel, who is a priest in exile with the Jews, taken from their homeland back to Babylon as an act of judgment from God. God used the Babylonians to uh, to overthrow the Jews and to judge them. And so Ezekiel was a priest in Babylon, and God called him to deliver some messages to the Jews there in exile. Uh, the second part of the book is, uh, or the outline, is a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. That's roughly chapters 4 through 24. So you notice we're in chapters 12 through 16. So we're right in the middle of this section of of God's message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah, for God's people, the Jews. The third part of the book is, is a series of messages for foreign nations, not just the Jews, but other nations as well, which is, again, a reminder that there are things we can learn that apply to our nation. And then fourth, there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. God has a word for the Jews after the utter destruction of Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonians. And then the fifth part of the book is a vision of restoration. Uh, Here's a summary of the book. Kendall easily writes, From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts, we'll see some of those tonight, were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. The purpose of the message, uh, the message is, was to remind his people, I am the Lord. Worship me, follow me, obey me, live for me. Uh, I am the Lord. He wanted to get them to turn back to him. Now, I want you to think about this, this idea of a spiritually bankrupt nation. And I want to answer two questions about a spiritually bankrupt nation. But before we do that, I want you, I want you to see what the Lord calls his people in, in a couple of chapters. First of all, if you look there in your notes, the Lord calls his people a useless vine. A useless vine. Now look in Ezekiel chapter 15. We're going to kind of go backwards tonight. But look in chapter 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest is wood taken from it to make anything. Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire is consumed, both ends of it and the middle of it is charred. Is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them, though any escape, uh, though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and, and yet you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them, and I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. So here's what God is saying. You don't use a vine... To build a house. You don't get two by fours from vines, right? I mean, vines aren't made to supply building uh, products. That's, that's what he says there. A vine is good for one thing. A vine is good for producing fruit, right? And the problem is the vine of Israel was not producing fruit. Now, right in your margin there, Isaiah chapter 5. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, God uses this analogy of the vine to speak of how God had blessed Israel so that they would produce fruit and make his name known to all the other nations. And he says things in Isaiah 5 like, 
you know, I planted you, I protected you, I preserved you, I watered you, I cultivated you. I put so much into this vine, this nation of Israel. In fact, he says in Isaiah 5, what more could I have done than what I've done for you? That's what he says to Israel. I did all of these things. I bless you in so many ways so you would produce fruit. But because they turn from the one true God and turn to false gods and turn to idolatry, they were a fruitless vine. They were a useless vine. And so because of that, God was going to send judgment to the Babylonians. He said, I'm going to burn up, I'm going to burn up the vine. And it's interesting, in 586 B.C., the, the kind of the final wave of the Babylonians coming and overthrowing the Jews... Uh, they burn the temple, and they burn the walls, and they burn the cities. There was kind of a literal fulfillment um, to this. Now remember, Ezekiel's in captivity with some Jews, and, but they left some Jews in Jerusalem and in Judah. And, and, and the Babylonians were going to go back again because of their unfaithfulness to God and overthrow them yet again and burn down the city. And so God calls them a useless vine, a vine that doesn't bear fruit is useless uh, for anything else. But then he calls them a faithless bride. And this is a long chapter. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but chapter 16 is all about this picture of Israel being unfaithful, practicing spiritual infidelity in their relationship with God. In verses 1 through 14, God formed Israel into a great nation. That's what this passage is about. He entered into a special covenant relationship with them. And so he uses the imagery of a bride when speaking of Israel. For example, look in verse 8 of chapter 16. Chapter uh, 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. You became mine. I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your uh, neck. He says in verse 14, fast forward, or into verse 13, you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So the Lord's using marriage imagery here. He's saying, you were my bride. Israel, you were my bride and I made you beautiful and I entered into this covenant with you and I'm a faithful God but you are an unfaithful bride because look what happens in the next part of this section, verses 15 through 58, we see that this prosperous, beautiful nation turned from the one true God to false gods. Look what it says in verse 15. He says, but you trusted in your beauty. Now listen to this. This is a strong language. And played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. So he's speaking there of their spiritual infidelity to God. They turn from the one true God to false uh, gods. Look in verse 30. Fast forward to verse 30, this same chapter. He says, How sick is your heart? Idolatry begins in the heart. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. And then fast forward to verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and all your abom abominable idols. 
because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. What he's saying there is you sacrificed your kids, ritual sacrifice to worship these false gods. They were killing their kids to worship Molech and other false gods. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all these other false gods and nations, all those you loved and all those you hate. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And there I will judge you, verse 38, as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will give you into their hands all those nations you cozied up with, Wanted to be like all those surrounding godless nations. I'm going to give you into their hands like the the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And and so he calls them here a faithless bride. So these are really two striking pictures of spiritual bankruptcy. They were God's people. God had blessed them and 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 blessed them. And yet they were fruitless. And faithless. And that's a picture of what spiritual bankruptcy looks like. Now, I want to ask two questions and answer the questions from our passage tonight. Number one, how does a nation get here? How does a nation, a group of people, become spiritually bankrupt? And then I want to ask the question, how does God deal with a spiritually bankrupt nation? All right? So question number one How does a nation become spiritually bankrupt? Well, there are four answers to that question that are found here in in the, the, the description of what was happening among God's people. First of all, false proverbs. Now turn back to Ezekiel chapter 12. Ezekiel chapter 12. And look in verse 21. We'll get back to the beginning of chapter 12 in a few moments because it's a very important passage. But look in Ezekiel chapter 12. Verse 21, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb? What's a proverb? It's a short, pithy saying, right? Um, what's, what's, a, what's a proverb that you hear in our culture? Um, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's a proverb, a short, pithy statement. That's not in the Bible, but that's a, that's a short, pithy statement that you hear people say. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Short, pithy statement. That's not in the Bible either, but you hear people say that. And so there's a proverb, and he says uh, there, what is this proverb, this short, pithy statement that is being shared and spread among my people? What is this proverb that you have, you have about the land of Israel saying, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? Here's what the people are saying. God keeps saying he's going to send ultimate devastation. Judgment is coming, but I don't see it. I mean, God keeps saying hard times are coming. I don't really see it. I don't, I don't, really, I don't, I don't really think we need to fear the judgment of God. I, I, I think that's just something we don't have to even think about. Where is it? If it's, if it's coming, where is it? And it had become a proverb. The days grow long, every vision comes to nothing. Tell them therefore, verse 20, Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are near the fulfillment of every vision. So, so what's God saying here? There, there, there was a false proverb and others as well that were spreading among the people that were, that were reflections of their lack of belief in what God had to say. 
Now, John Taylor writes this about Proverbs, short pithy statements. And I think I put this in your notes. A memorable slogan can wield tremendous influence for good as well for evil. Let me say it again. A memorable slogan can wield tremendous influence for good as well for evil. Did you know that those that are probably 25 and under, they get all of their political information from social media? Little short, pithy statements or talking points. And they'll read something on social media and immediately that becomes their political view or their spiritual view or their sociological view. They just read a short, pithy statement and they, they take hold of it. And, and John Taylor, the Old Testament scholar, says a memorable slogan can wield tremendous influence for good and for evil. So listen, our society today on a spiritual level is filled with short, pithy sayings that are categorically false. There are all sorts of one-liners out there that are just untrue. Just like what was happening here in the nation of Israel. Um, here, here's one of my favorites. If you try to say something about the Bible or what God says about a certain behavior, people say, do not judge. Do not judge. In other words, when they say do not judge, they, they're saying that you can't make any statement about right or wrong to anybody. Because if you are, you're judging. Which is a total misrepresentation of what the Bible means when it says do not judge. If you, if you go back to Matthew 7, Jesus says don't judge lest you be judged. If you're, going to, if you're going to point out someone's issue, make sure you've dealt with your own issues. I mean, don't, don't approach someone with a speck in their eye if you've got a log in your eye. But listen to what Jesus said. He said before you deal with the speck, take the log out of your eye, then go deal with the speck. Listen to me. It's not wrong to deal with someone's speck. But you got to deal with your hypocrisy first. You got to deal with your own logs, right? But it's okay to say God says this is right and God says this is wrong. It's okay to say God speaks on moral issues and there is a such thing as absolute truth, right? But in our culture, do not judge, do not judge. You can't tell me my lifestyle is wrong. Don't judge, don't judge. And it's become a short, pithy statement that is categorically unbiblical. Another one, all roads lead to God. Flies the face of John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way to salvation, one way to a relationship with God, only one way to forgiveness, only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. But our culture is like, well, just choose the, 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 the faith expression that makes you the most comfortable, that you kind of jive with the most, that you vibe with the most. And when you find that which you feel comfortable in, then it's okay because eventually all of those different faith expressions are going to get you to the same point. Wrong, wrong, wrong. All roads lead to God. Short, pithy statement. Clever, easy to take hold of, easy to believe, but categorically unbiblical and false. How about this one? Listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. You know what Jeremiah 17, 9 says? The, the Bible says, The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. 
Listening to our heart is going to get us in all kinds of trouble. Listen to God and let him transform your heart. Amen? But it sounds good, right? Listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. There, there's another one, which this statement, you've probably seen it on social media or heard it in some way, shape, or form. But it's the phrase, and, and, and young people, man, they, they, they're grasping hold of this short, pithy statement. Love is love. And, and when you hear someone say love is love, what they're saying is this. It doesn't matter what God says or other people say. If you love somebody and you want to have intimacy with that person, then you should be able to do that because love is love. So if I love somebody, you shouldn't be able to tell me that I can't be with that certain person that I love because love is love. Well, the Bible actually says God is love. And because, listen, because God loves us, he knows what's best for us. So when he gives us his commandments, right and wrong, he gives them to us because he knows that we will thrive in obedience to his commandments. And when we disregard what God says about you know, sexual intimacy and those other, if we disregard what God says, it's going to get us into all kinds of trouble. It'll destroy our lives. So God is love. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. So listen to what he has to say because no one loves you more than God and do what he tells you to do and follow his commandments. But there are all sorts of these proverbs that are permeating our society. And if you think they're not having an impact on the younger generations, you just don't understand what's happening out there. And so how does the nation become spiritually bankrupt? False proverbs. False proverbs. And boy, this is so prevalent in our culture today. Number two, false prophets. False prophets. Look what it says in verse 13 of, I'm sorry, chapter 13 of this section. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel, that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They, watch this, verse 6. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and utter lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Verse 8, therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. What was the Prophet, or what was the problem in Israel? They had people who represented God and were supposed to be pointing people to truth, and yet they were teaching false things. That's the problem. And God said, I didn't call you, I didn't give you a vision, I didn't give you a message. You went out all on your own and says, Thus says the Lord. And they would say something that was false and un. True, and God here is condemning these false prophets. And the reality of the false prophets was one of the reasons that Israel was moving away from God instead of toward God. Listen to what Warren Wearsby says about false prophets. A true prophet will tell people what they need to hear, but a false prophet tells them what they want to hear. 
A true servant of God builds carefully on a strong foundation and keeps the wall in good repair, but a hireling builds carelessly and whitewashes things to make them look better. That's a false prophet. And you say, well, that was, a, that was, you know, that was in the, uh, what, 6th uh, century B.C. That's not a problem today, right? We don't have false prophets today, do we? 2 Timothy chapter 4 says that in the latter days, people will accumulate for themselves teachers for their own desires. And it says that they will want to have people teaching and preaching to them that, listen, tickle their ears. Make me feel good. Make me feel spiritual. But I leave after hearing that teaching and I haven't heard from God. And listen to me. This is rampant in our culture. And and here's one of the problems we're facing in 2022. Because of internet, social media, technology, these false teachers are all the more accessible. Now there's a lot of good technology. Good Bible teachers are accessible. But there are a lot of false teachers out there. And with a click of a button, you can find them. So it takes a, a real discernment to discern between a false prophet and a true teacher of the word of God. But I'm telling you that when a nation begins to go in a downward spiral, you will find that nation satiated with false prophets who are not telling people the truth. That's true in America today. And I can give you lots of examples, but I better not tonight. Third, faithless princes. Look in chapter 14. Chapter 14. We're talking about where really, this is really a, uh, an anatomy of, of, uh, of, of how a, a nation becomes spiritually bankrupt. Faithless princes. Look in chapter 14. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men, these elders, these leaders, th- these would be equivalent to the to politicians. These are the, the, the leaders of the, of the nation. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel, watch this, who takes idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Here's what he's saying. The leaders are coming to Ezekiel and saying, we want to hear from God. And God's saying, why do you want to hear from me? You have been taking idols into your heart. And you, as those who wield influence among the people, are leading people into greater and greater idol worship. So don't expect to hear from me. That's what he's saying here to these leaders. Uh, My favorite definition of of leadership comes from John Maxwell because it's so simple and it's so easy to remember and it's so accurate. Leadership is nothing more than influence. If someone influences another person, they're they're exercising leadership. That's what leadership is. Leadership is influence. And, and, And here's the problem in Israel. People who had influence were leading people astray. So look in our culture. People that have influence. Look in the, uh, the political realm. Look in, 
entertainment, look, look in education. Look, I mean, look at these different realms where people exercise influence and, and are leading, and you will find ungodly ideologies that are leading people astray. And a nation rises and falls on the level of its leadership. That's just, you just, you just can't get away from that. A nation rises and falls on the level of its leadership. So one of the reasons that Israel was so, so spiritually and morally bankrupt, they were a useless vine, a faithless bride, is because they had leaders who led them away from God instead of to, to the fear of God. And then fourth, faithless people. Faithless people. Look in verse 6 of chapter 14. Therefore, the, therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations for any one of the house of Israel. He's not, not just talking about you know, prophets and, and princes. He's talking about anybody. Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel or who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword, cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so God's saying, if anyone comes to me that's been worshiping idols, they will experience my judgment. And so he's speaking here of faithless people. So how does a nation become spiritually bankrupt? False proverbs, false prophets, faithless princes, faithless people. I think if you lifted this, um, uh, lifted this um, matrix and placed it on top of our nation, you'd see some of the exact th- same things happening today. So, question. How does God deal with a spiritually bankrupt nation? What can we learn from how God dealt with Israel? Well, there are three things here. Number one, he gets their attention. Now go all the way back to chapter 12. I told you we're kind of going backwards tonight. Chapter 12, I want to show you the beginning of this section. Chapter 12, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage. So he's saying, pack a bag here. And go into exile by day in their sight. So he's saying, act like you're, with a bag, act like you're going into exile away from your home. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile. You shall go out yourself at evening in their sight as those who do uh, those do who must go into exile in their sight. Watch this. Dig through the wall. Bring your baggage out through it. So he's mimicking someone that's secretly trying to escape going into exile. We'll talk about that in a moment. In their sight you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder, carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I've made you a sign for the house of Israel. And... Ezekiel says, I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as baggage for exile, and in the evening I dug through the wall with my own hands. I brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. So here's what God's saying. Ezekiel, they're not really listening to you preach. They're not really interested in your sermons. So I want you to act out day by day what it looks like for someone to pack their bags, dig through a wall, 
and try to get away from their homeland and go somewhere else. And so every day, Ezekiel was going through this acting. And people are watching this and probably thinking, has Ezekiel lost his mind? What is going on? But what's God doing? He's getting their attention. And he does this another way, uh, a little bit further in the text. Look what it says in uh, verse 17. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink water with trembling and with anxiety. And, and say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink water in dismay. In this way her land will be stripped of all it contains on account of the violence of all those who dwell in it. And the inhabited city shall be laid waste. The land shall become a desolation. You shall know that I am the Lord. So he had to actually act out drinking and eating with fear. So he's, he, you know, he's shaking hands and he's, he's, he's eating, drinking water and eating bread and he's, he's acting like he's anxious and scared and fearful. And this was to communicate something about the people who were back in Israel. Remember, he's in Babylon, but there were still some Jews in Israel. And God's saying, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they haven't turned back to me, even though I've sent two waves of Babylonian domination They still haven't turned back to me, so the people that are there are about to be devastated by my judgment. So act that out by trembling hands, eating your bread and drinking your water. So what's God doing here? He's getting their attention. And I believe that's what God does to to a spiritually bankrupt nation. I believe that God graciously, mercifully gets people's attention. And you look back at our nation. Has God tried to get our attention? COVID? Right? 9 11? I mean, has God, has, has God tried? I, I've, I've shared this before, but I remember 9 11. Uh, I was pastoring a church in Memphis, and, 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 and right after 9 11, the churches were full. I mean, we had a full house and special prayer services for two weeks. Two weeks, everything went back to normal. Why? God could have used that to get our attention. I think he wanted to use that to get our attention. He allowed it to happen. It was evil, but God allowed it to happen to get our attention. And it did not get our attention. But here, he's, he's using Ezekiel's you know, acting skills to get their attention. But then he tells them the truth. There, there's a message behind each of these symbolic acts. First of all, back up to chapter 10. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 10. Remember him acting out exile, verse 10. We're going closer shortly, but look what it says. Thus says the Lord God, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I'm a sign for you as I've done, so it shall be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. Remember, he's acting at, acting it out. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall. So this prince in Israel was going to try to dig through the wall and escape the enemies that had come against their city. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face, watch this, that he may not see the land with his eyes. And I will spread my net over him, this prince, He shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. Look at this next phrase. Yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. So God's saying there's a leader in Jerusalem. He's going to try to escape. He's not going to be successful. He's going to be taken into exile. He won't see it. Now, is this talking about anybody in particular? Is this kind of a... um, 
just a, a general prophecy that we never see fulfillment of. No, no, no. This is very specific. In fact, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 25, I won't have you go there tonight. If you go to 2 Kings 25, you'll see that this speaks specifically of Zedekiah. He was the, the puppet king installed by Nebuchadnezzar after the first two waves of the Babylonians coming against the Jews. And he left them there in Jerusalem to rule. And this happened after the death of Jehoiakim and the deportation of the rightful king Jehoiakim. And Zedekiah, was, he, made, he made Nebuchadnezzar mad. He was captured after trying to escape by the Babylonians. And right before they took him to Babylon, you know what they did? They poked his eyes out. He didn't see any of it. And this prophecy tells us exactly, exactly that's what was going to happen. This prophecy was fulfilled through King Zedekiah. He went back to Babylon, taken there into captivity, and he died there in Babylon. There's a very specific fulfillment to this specific prophecy. So he tells them the truth. Judgment is coming. And, and then remember the whole trembling hands of, of water and bread. Uh, look in verse uh, 19. He says... They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink water in dismay. In other words, this acting out pictured the fear and the, the, the trembling of the Jews as the Babylonians advanced a third time to overthrow the city and burn it down and take thousands back into exile. So he gets their attention. He tells them the truth. God gives us his word. There are still, there are still biblical preachers out there and people who are speaking truth to our nation. So God uses those folks to tell the truth. But here's the third thing. This is the third way that God deals with a spiritually bankrupt nation. He holds out hope. Listen to me. There's always hope with God. There's always hope if you turn to him. Uh, fast forward to chapter 16. We're going to close with this. Chapter 16. We covered a large passage tonight, but, but, but look in uh, chapter 16, verse 59. This comes on the heels of the description of Israel being a faithless bride. Verse 59, he says, For thus says the Lord, the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. I entered into a covenant with you, you're my chosen people, and you were unfaithful. Yet, look in verse 60, oh, I love this. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you. You were unfaithful, I, I'm faithful. I'll remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. You blew it with the first one. You were unfaithful. You know, you could sum up the first covenant that God had with Israel as the Ten Commandments. That's, that was the basic moral law of God, and they blew it. And guess what? When you hold our lives up by the Ten Commandments, we've blown it too, right? So God has instituted a new covenant for people who were unfaithful to the first covenant. Look what he says. It's everlasting. Then you will remember your ways. Be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded. Never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I Watch this. When I atone for you, for all you have done, declares the Lord God. So God is saying, you were faithless. You were wicked. You were sinful. You have turned your back on me. You have
have been a nation of spiritual infidelity, but I am a faithful God. I am a merciful God. I am a gracious God. So I'm going to enter into this new covenant, make this new covenant available where there's atonement, forgiveness for your sins, and the covenant never ends. What's he talking about? When the upper room, on the night before Jesus Christ was betrayed and arrested, he instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, take this cup and drink it. This, this cup is representing the new covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus Christ was going to go to the cross, die for our sins, pay the penalty we deserve to pay, and then defeat death when he rose from the grave so that he could save us and bring us into a new covenant, a new relationship with God that never, ever ends. Everlasting covenant. So look there in your notes. I love this. In the face of human unfaithfulness, and listen, there's a lot of unfaithfulness in this room to go around. Amen? Starting with Pastor Wade. We've all been unfaithful to God. It's easy to look at the Jews and think, man, what was their deal? What was their problem? But we've all rebelled against God in some way, shape, or form. In the face of human unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. Watch this. And graciously offers a new covenant of salvation. And that new covenant is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Good news. So what do we learn from this as we think about a bankrupt nation? Well, first of all, there's individual hope because of Jesus. Even though we find ourselves living in unfaithfulness to God and we've rebelled against Him, we've sinned against Him, there's forgiveness. There's a relationship with God that will never end if we just embrace Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. There's individual hope. But there's also corporate hope because of the mighty mercy of our God. God's saying, you, you, you've crossed the line. Judgment is coming, but, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm faithful. And, and as I was studying this, it, it, I just, my mind kept going back to, to, to uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 for a nation. Again, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is for Israel, but the principles apply to, I believe, any nation. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 says what? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. I will, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, listen, and heal their land. I, I'm telling you that God could send, America's not too far gone, God could send a third great awakening that will turn this nation back to a God-fearing nation. May it come to pass for the glory of King Jesus. Father, we love you and praise you and thank you for the truth of your word and how it speaks into our lives. Write it upon our hearts and help us to leave this place changed tonight in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.